0: Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Wenton, California. This morning, I want to talk to us about a little misconception that a lot of Christians tend to fall into the trap of, and I know me personally has fallen into, so I kind of want to go through this morning and kind of clear up one of those misconceptions. Well, I'm sure all of us are pretty familiar on how our finances operate in this culture. We go to work, we earn wages, and we deposit that in a bank account. The bank credits that amount of money to our account, but we also have bills to pay, right? And regardless of how we might choose to pay those bills on the front end... For example, credit card, debit card, bill pay, so on and and so on. Those funds have to eventually come out of our bank account. And when that occurs, the bank debits our account for that amount of money. No, this is not an economics lesson, I promise. Okay, Bear with me. But if we've done an effective job of doing so and of budgeting then at the end of each month, the amount that has been deposited into our account will be equal to or greater to the amount that comes out of our account. That's the goal that we all share from time to time, don't we? But if we're living paycheck to paycheck, or if for some reason the amount of our paycheck is decreased, or our expenses increase, which a lot of us are incurring now, then there is going to be a whole lot of stress about our finances. Well, unfortunately, that model seems to have greatly influenced how many people view the way that God deals with us. I know this is true because, like I said, I was one of those people for the first 18 years of my life. During that time, I believed that God had a spiritual bank account for me. And every time that I did something good, I had something deposited in my spiritual account. And he would make that deposit on my, my behalf, and he would credit my account. Sounds good, right? And conversely, every time I did something bad... God would make a withdrawal and debit my account. Now, I assumed that as long as my deposits were greater than my withdrawals, at the end of my life, even only a little bit, then I would earn my way into heaven. We know that's not the case. But apparently, I'm not the only one who has viewed God like that. Now, a recent study by the Barna Group, Found that 72% of the people surveyed believe that it is possible for someone to earn their way into heaven by their good behavior. Even nearly one half of those who identify themselves as born-again Christians. They believe that it is possible to earn one's salvation through good deeds. And as we're going to see this morning, God God does indeed have a spiritual accounting system. But fortunately for us, it doesn't work the way that I once thought it did or the way that many others think it does today. So go ahead and turn our Bibles to Romans chapter 4 and follow along as I read in the beginning starting at verse 1. Romans chapter 4 verse 1. but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered." Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, as you can see within that scripture, the verb count is central to this passage. It is used five times here in this passage, and we'll see Paul use it six more times before we get to the end of chapter 4. So it seems that we're going to be able to Accurately understand what Paul is writing here. We probably need to take a moment to define that term. So, what is to count? What is to count? The underlining Greek word is an accounting term that means to enter something into a ledger. Now, the frequent use of this verb does reveal that God does, in fact, have a spiritual ledger in which he enters debits and credits to our account. But, as we've seen in Romans, and as we'll see confirmed once again this morning, he doesn't do it in a way that uh, Paul's audience thought he did. or, Or the way most people think that it does today. In God's spiritual accounting system... My standing with God is dependent on what I receive. Dependent on what I receive, not what I achieve. What I receive, but not what I achieve. Now, this may very well be one of the most freeing concepts in the entire Bible. If I don't really believe this, then I am going to live my life from paycheck to paycheck spiritually. I'm going to constantly be stressed out, wondering whether I've made enough deposits into my account by my good deeds to cover the withdrawals that result from my sin. If I live like that, I can never really truly be sure of exactly where I stand. And it's not a joyful way to live at all. And just because I've committed my life to Christ doesn't mean I'm immune from falling back into the way of that thinking. I know that for me personally, even after I committed my life to Christ, that feeling that I needed to impress God, especially with what I could achieve, didn't go away completely right away. And that mindset often carried over into other areas of my life. And as I look back on my life, which is not that far behind me, but as I look back on my life, I can clearly see now how many times I did things in my life because I was getting my sense of self-worth from the things that I achieved in my life rather than seeing my life from God's viewpoint. And if I'm not careful, I could still fall into that trap. Even today, even though I'm much older and hopefully a little bit more wiser. But my goal this morning is twofold for you. First, I want to make sure that we all have a clear understanding of how God's spiritual accounting process operates. And then secondly, I want us to see how having the correct view can free us from the bondage that comes when we try to find our worth in our achievement rather than by seeing ourselves through God's eyes. In order to accomplish that, we need to look at what Paul reveals here about each of us and also what he reveals about God. And then we can put those together to arrive at an accurate understanding of God's spiritual accounting system. Paul summarizes what this passage reveals about us and about God right in the middle of the passage in the middle of verse 5. I'll read it again. Him who justifies the ungodly. He who justifies the ungodly. But let's, let's first look at what this passage really reveals to us. Paul is going to once again make the case that he has been making over and over again in his letter. All men are ungodly. So let's begin here by defining that term, ungodly. What is ungodly? Definition says without reverence or awe. And up until now, everything that Paul has written in his letter is pretty theoretical, okay? He has shared a lot of his theological truth, but now in order to drive his point home, he is going to put flesh and blood to it. He's going to put flesh and blood to it. Paul's audience, particularly his fellow Jews, would have immediately agreed that the pagan Gentiles were ungodly and in need of being justified by God but they would have never considered themselves to be ungodly. So Paul uses the example of two heroes of the Jewish faith to show that Jews, that they too, are ungodly and therefore in need of God's justification. In a sense, Abraham and David bookend the Jewish faith. So by citing the examples of their lives... Paul is confirming once again that the law of faith, justification by faith, rather than by the works of the law, is nothing new. At the beginning of their history as a people, Abraham, who the Bible calls a friend of God, lived even before the Israelites existed as a people and before God had given the law to his people through Moses. David's reign as the king of Israel comes near the end of Israel as a united people around 900 years after Abraham. And David, unlike Abraham, lived under the law. So if Paul can show both Abraham and David were justified by God apart from keeping the law, then he should be able to convince his audience that this is also true for them as well. So Paul uses the scripture to prove that Abraham was ungodly. The Jews of Paul's day looked at Abraham through rose-colored glasses. In spite of the fact that the scripture paints an entirely different picture, the rabbis taught that Abraham, even though he through the law had not yet been given, had kept it perfectly by uh, intuition and anticipation of the law. One ancient passage from the rabbis concluded that Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord. So it's no wonder that the Jews assumed that Abraham's righteousness was a result of what he had achieved. But Paul uses the scripture to show that couldn't possibly be the case. In verse 3, he quotes from Genesis 15.6. You don't need to turn there. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now in a minute we'll come back to the context of that verse. But first I want us to take a moment here and understand how Abraham arrived at this point in his life. We're first introduced to Abram in Genesis 11, where we find that Abram was born to his father, Terah, and grew up in a place called Ur. We know from historical records that the people of Ur worshipped many gods, with the primary one being the moon god, Nana. So it's not surprising that in Joshua 24.2, we learn that Terah and his descendants had served other gods. And while we can't be sure about how much Abraham practiced or participated in that idolatrous worship, we do know that at a minimum, he was raised in a pagan environment, much like we are today. So when God comes to Abram in Genesis 12 and promises to make his descendants into a great nation that will bless the entire world, it is clear that it is not because Abram had somehow merited God's favor. God chose him merely because in his sovereign wisdom, he chose to do that. Not because Abram was any more righteous or deserving than anyone else in that culture. God chose him. Abram immediately left his home in Haran to go to the place where God promised to lead him. But even after a face-to-face encounter with God, his obedience is incomplete. And although God had commanded Abram to leave his family behind... He took his nephew Lot with him. When there is a famine in the land, instead of depending on God for his provision, Abram decides to go to Egypt to get food. And because he doesn't trust God to protect him, he passes off his wife Sarai as his sister, which leads to all kinds of problems for the Egyptians and for Abram himself. About ten years after God first made his covenant with Abram, he appears to him again to affirm that covenant. God promises that Abram, who is still childless, will have a son who will be his heir, and that his offspring will be more numerous than a number of the stars in the sky. I only have two. I can't imagine that many. But even after another face-to-face encounter with God Abraham's actions aren't very righteous Instead of waiting on God to fulfill his promise Abraham was very impatient He was wanting a son But God already promised him and We know that God keeps his promises So he was teaching him some patience Don't ever ask for patience by the way you get plenty of opportunity to practice. But Abram, a son, and Abram and Sarah take things into their own hands. We know the story. Abraham has a child with one of Sarah's servants, a sin that still impacts our world today. So while Abraham certainly did do some good things in his life, I'm pretty sure that even he would not have been real comfortable having God making a spiritual accounting of his life by adding up the good things he had done to see if they outweighed all of his sin. Just like I would not want to stand before God and say, oh, I hope I did more good than I did bad. That's not really the point, is it? God has already taken care of that sin. He sent his son to die for that sin. But God goes on further and says that David was also ungodly. Now certainly the Jews of Paul's day were familiar with David's adultery with Bathsheba. And that also led to the murder of Uriah. So it would be pretty hard to argue that David was righteous before God as a result of his works. It is clear from his own writings that David certainly understood that if his life was evaluated by God, based on all that he had done, he would be considered ungodly. Paul has previously quoted from Psalm 51, one of the psalms that David wrote after his sin with Bathsheba. But in that psalm, David admits that his works proved That he was ungodly and that God would be just to punish him. And the only reason he has been forgiven is because of God's grace. So, Abraham is ungodly. David is ungodly. But they found favor from God. Doesn't that give us hope? Doesn't that give us the hope to believe that when we believe in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that he's taken that from us? That we're able to be free of that. For a small sacrifice here on earth, I think it's worth it. We talked about the trade last week. What are we willing to trade to have that covenant with God? It's it's going over the same thing here, but we also need to admit that if Abraham and David are ungodly, then we have to admit that, therefore, all are ungodly. All are ungodly. Because of what they achieved, Paul argues that it must be true that all men are in that same boat. We are all in that boat. Neither the Jews nor the Gentiles could ever hope to become righteous based on their works. So there has to be a different way to become righteous. And that's why we need to understand what this passage reveals about God. We've already identified what God does for us in verse 5. He justifies ungodly men. Hopefully you'll remember our definition of justify from many, many weeks ago when we talked about justification. But we know justification is to be declared not guilty. And as we pointed out, when God justifies someone, he does not make them righteous. He merely declares them to be righteous. That is why Paul continually uses the verb count here in chapter 4. When God justifies us, he essentially makes an accounting entry in our spiritual ledger. That accounting entry doesn't change who we are. But it does change how God views us. Instead of seeing my sin... God sees Jesus who became our righteousness by living a sinless life and dying on that cross to pay the penalty for our sin. Paul also describes two things that happen when God justifies us. First, God credits the righteousness of Jesus to our account. As Paul points out in verse 4, What we achieve through our works is what is due to us. So essentially, he compares it to a wage. But as Paul will point out clearly a little later in Romans, none of us want what we deserve because we know the wages of sin is what? Death. So instead of making deposits into our spiritual account, based on what we have done... If we place our faith in Jesus Christ, God fills up our account with the righteousness of Jesus. So that means my account is filled and your account is filled to overflowing with immeasurable riches. And that is so much better than whatever meager deposits I might be able to make into my own account based on... On my own achievements. That by itself is a blessing beyond measure, amen? But God does something else for us here too. God does not debit my account for my sin or your sin. That is the point Paul is making here in verses 6 through 8 when he writes about David in quotes from Psalm 32. In that psalm, David reveals that when God forgives our sins, when they are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ, God does not count, there's that word again, our sin against us. In other words, because of what Jesus has done on my behalf, there are no withdrawals from my spiritual account with God all due to our sin. He doesn't do that. So let's compare the two possible methods of spiritual accounting in God's kingdom. First is the one on which I operated for the early part of my life and one which apparently most people still operate. And that is the one where God keeps a ledger in which we make deposits based on the good and bad deeds that we do. And that method is really analogous to God grading on a curve, which the Bible makes clear over and over again is not the way that God operates. But let's just suppose for a minute that it is the way that God operates and uses his spiritual accounting system. Is that really the way you want to live? Living on that proverbial paycheck to paycheck spiritual way of life? Is that the way we want to live do we really want to rely upon the fact that somehow your good outweighs your bad i would think that would be a miserable way to live the second method is the one that paul describes here in romans chapter 4 it is the one in which god deposits innumerable innumerable riches that are based on what jesus did for you not anything to do with what you've done. And I guarantee you that amount is exponentially greater than any deposits you can make as a result of your good works. But not only that, there's not even one withdrawal charge to that account because the blood of Jesus has completely covered our sin. We don't have to pay for that. If you live on that basis, you don't need to question your salvation. You don't need to live in fear that somehow you're not good enough for God. You will be freed from the achievement trap that deceives you into thinking that your worth comes from what you achieve rather than God's love that he demonstrates by giving you those spiritual riches. Given the two choices, there's no doubt which one I would pick, and I would venture to say the same for you. I began by saying that our standing with God is dependent on what I receive, or you receive, rather than what we achieve. And focusing on that last part of that theme and showing why I can't possibly merit God's favor based on what I achieved. So as we close this morning, we need to take a few minutes to focus on the first part of that statement and determine exactly what it is I need to receive and how to do that. Hopefully by now it's apparent that what I need to receive is God's justification. I need God to declare me not guilty. And it is also apparent that I can't possibly receive that justification based on anything that I do or you do. So if that's the case, how do we receive it? How do we receive God's justification? There are two places in this passage that help us to answer that question. In verse 3, Paul quotes Genesis 15, where we read that Abraham believed God. And that as a result, God counted his faith to him as righteousness. In verse 5, Paul writes that the one who has his faith counted to him as righteousness is the one who believes in him who justifies the ungodly. In those verses, we find the two related Greek words that we looked at in some detail last week. The verb believe and the noun faith. I'm not going to take the time to go back and, and detail that again. But if you missed that or you want to review it again, go back to last week. Go back in time. But I will remind us that biblical belief and faith Is far more than merely an intellectual understanding of a set of facts. It is trusting in what we believe. Trusting in what we believe to be true to the extent that we are willing to completely abandon our lives to live according to that belief. It's interesting that the first time in the Bible we find the word believe and the first time we find the idea of God counting his righteousness to someone is in Genesis 15. So what exactly was the nature of Abraham's belief there? We find some insight into that in another of Paul's letters. And in that scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. We certainly don't know All the details here, but it is clear that God revealed enough to Abraham that at a minimum he understood that one day through his offspring, singular, God would justify all Jews and Gentiles alike. That is how God was going to ultimately fulfill his earlier promises to bless all the nations of all the earth through Abraham's offspring. Jesus also confirmed that Abraham had received the revelation of the gospel from God. John chapter 8, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So even though Abraham probably didn't know Jesus' names or many of the details of the gospel, Abraham looked forward in faith to God's Redeemer. And God credited that faith to him as righteousness. We also see David's faith alluded to in our text. We've already noted that Paul quoted from Psalm 32. Later in that psalm, David reveals the means by which our sins are forgiven and covered and not counted to us. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And although the word for trust that David uses here is different than the word believe that described what Abraham did, the two words just describe slightly different aspects of faith. Now, I'm certainly no Hebrew scholar, so one of my favorite resources when I want to gain a better understanding of Hebrew is through Dr. Skip Moen, who is a dean at uh, Masters. It's a book I recommend. But he says there, he writes the word trust that David uses there to mean to live at ease. For me, that is by far the best definition of faith that I've ever seen. And it really captures the essence of the kind of faith that both Abraham and David exercised in their lives and which resulted in them being justified by God. So, it answers quite well the question we posed a few minutes ago. How do I receive God's justification? By living at ease because of confidence in God. What I really like about that definition is that it makes clear that faith is not a work that merits God's declaring me righteousness. It is not like God is looking down on my life and saying, wow, look at Chris's faith. I'm really impressed with that, so I'm going to declare him righteous. If that were the case, then I would certainly have no reason to boast about my faith. And as we've seen repeatedly in Romans... The gospel precludes any boasting on my part. Even our faith is a gift from God, not something we can conjure up on our own. It is merely the channel in which we receive that justification by God that he bestows upon us. So we had two goals this morning to make sure that we have a clear understanding of how God's spiritual accounting process operates. I pray that there is absolutely no doubt in anyone's minds here this morning that the only way to be righteous in God's sight is by having Him make deposits into your spiritual account, not based on what you do, but rather based on what He's already done for you. Also, to be freed from the bondage that comes when we try... To find our worth and our achievement rather than seeing ourselves through God's eyes. When we genuinely place our confidence in God, it does allow us to live at ease, knowing that we're not responsible for our own salvation. And I believe that when we live like that, it also frees us up from that achievement trap. We all have a tendency to fall into that in every area of our lives. And that kind of freedom really isn't much more joyful way to live, is it? I would rather live free knowing God's got my back. I can put my faith and trust in that. Amen? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. To have you reveal to us what genuine faith and hope looks like. Thank you that you justify your people to be righteous. Thank you that you love us, that you care for us, and you seek out things for our own well-being. But Lord, we need to take that step and we need to follow you more closely we need to follow you in faith, to understand that we're put on this earth for a specific reason. We are to tell others about Christ, to share in the love and the hope that we witness and are a part of, part of every day. I want that for all of God's people. I want that for those who don't know God that through our actions and through the faith that is lived out publicly, that we would bring others to you. Thank you for our time this morning. And I pray that it doesn't end here this morning. That when we leave these doors, you provide opportunities for us to live that faith. Thank you for all that you do and for your church. And all of God's people said, Amen. 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 We will be heading to the fellowship hall. All are invited to attend. In which, Once we're there, we'll pray and enjoy our festivities. Alright? We are dismissed. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org. O-R-G.